Chapter Fourteen of the Mary Anne. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Read by Betsy Bush. The Mary Anne by Samuel Merwin. Chapter Fourteen. Harbor Lights. Beveridge recovered first and said in a businesslike way, "You'll have to give me your weapons." Henry at once handed over two large-caliber revolvers and emptied his pockets of fully half a hundred cartridges. "'It's a lucky thing for you, Mr. Beveridge,' he said. "'The dick came out just when he did. A minute more and I should have finished you.' But Beveridge's thoughts were not heading in the same direction. His reply was, "'Where's Spencer?' "'Spencer? You didn't get him?' "'No. Then he's in Canada.' Oh, I see. Beveridge turned to Smiley. Well, Dick, for a man that got things exactly wrong, you came nearer to being right than I should have thought possible. As they walked back toward Van Deelen's, Henry fell in with his cousin. You don't seem very talkative, Dick. Guess I must have surprised you. But Dick could not find his voice to reply. And you surprised me, too, rather. How did you happen to be up here with this man? "'Then you don't know that he's holding me for Whiskey Jim?' cried Dick. "'No, is he?' Dick, overcome with fatigue and emotion, nodded. Henry stopped and turned to the special agent who was walking close behind. "'You didn't think Dick here was in this business, did you?' "'We'll discuss that later. Move along, please.' "'But this won't do, Beveridge. Dick has nothing to do with it, nothing whatever.' I suppose he didn't know where his schooner went and what he carried aboard her, eh? Oh, I can explain all that. He's all right. I'm the man you want. I'll talk with you again, Mr. Smiley. We can't stop now. They found Wilson in a bad way. Mrs. Van Deelen had been doing her utmost during the night for her two patients, but to attempt moving either was out of the question. Beveridge left some money to cover the expense of caring for his subordinate, and Henry good-naturedly contributed toward the care of Estelle. It was arranged that Van Deelen should drive Beveridge and his party back to Spencer's, stopping on the way to send Lindquist or his boy to Hewittson for a doctor. Nothing more could be done here, and so they hurried Van Deelen into hitching up at once. Beveridge could not sleep in comfort until his prisoner should be safe under guard on the revenue cutter. "'There's one thing,' said the special agent to Henry Smiley, as the four haggard men climbed into the wagon that was to take them on the long drive through the forest. "'There's one thing I don't understand. Why didn't you fellows pick up a horse at one of these places and drive, instead of footing it, with a woman along, too?' "'We did start in Spencer's wagon, but it broke down before we'd gone ten miles. The road was so bad.' "'But we didn't see it,' said Pink.' We must have passed it on the first stretch before we found the road. And then, said Henry, I thought we'd better stick it out on foot. You see, I didn't believe it would occur to you that we would take to the woods, and even if it should, I thought we should have plenty of time before you started after us. I misjudged it there, you see. I was thinking hardest about the other end of it, about what we should do when we got down into Indiana, with maybe your men on the lookout for us everywhere. 
and then a horse is a giveaway. You can't hide it. And the road is so heavy with sand that it's most as quick to walk. I thought it all over and decided it that way. So we dragged the wagon off into the bushes and led the horse off and shot him. But why didn't you ride? We didn't get a chance until we reached Lindquist's, and then we were so close on your trail, and I knew you were on foot, that I decided the same way. If we had been rattling along in a wagon, you might have heard us quarter of a mile ahead, and all you would have had to do then would be to step into the bushes and let us go by. At a few minutes before noon, the party alighted from the wagon at Spencer's Wharf, where the Marianne still lay, waved a signal to the launch, and were carried out past False Middle Island to the foot. "'I guess there isn't much doubt what we'll do next,' said Beveridge with a yawn, as the launch drew near to the companion ladder, which had been let down forward of the paddle-wheel. "'I guess there ain't,' Pink replied with another yawn. "'One thing, Dick,' said Beveridge, "'before we go away from here, "'it isn't right to leave your schooner in there "'for the porcupines to chew to pieces.' Dick, who had been studying the bottom of the boat, looked up quickly and with a peculiar expression. After Henry's confession, would he be allowed to sail her back himself? Beveridge caught the look, and for an instant his face showed the faintest trace of confusion. "'You see,' he went on, "'I've been thinking it over on the way back from Van Deelen's. It's rather an irregular thing to do,' but I'm willing, if Captain Sullivan will let us have a few men, to turn the schooner over to Harper here. He's competent to handle her, isn't he? Oh, yes, Dick replied in a dry voice. He is competent enough. Pink's eyes brightened. Sure thing, he said. I can run her easy. Dick glanced at Pink, then dropped his eyes again. The boy had heard only the words. He had not caught the thoughts that were passing between his captain and the special agent. To Dick, this decision, coming in the lull after the excitement, coming after what seemed to him proof of his innocence, sounded like the judge's sentence. Through the hour or two that followed, during the dinner on the steamer, after the launch had gone back into the harbor with Pink and his crew, even when the old side-wheeler had raised her anchor and started on her lumbering way around through the straits, and up Lake Michigan to Chicago. Dick, lying dressed in his berth, was trying to puzzle out the meaning of Beveridge's words, and of the momentary confusion that had accompanied them. It did not raise his spirits that, after each struggle with the problem, his thoughts were directed to Annie. Perhaps Beveridge himself, if he had laid his thoughts bare, could not have helped him much, for it was not reasoning that had shown him the tactical folly of allowing Dick to come sailing gloriously in to Annie's very front door, red shirt, neckerchief, and all the appurtenances of a hero. It was the instinct that made it impossible for him to resist holding every advantage that came to his hand. Beveridge had done a big thing. He had run down, killed or captured, or driven out of the country, several members of the most skillful gang in the history of smuggling on the Great Lakes, he had done it alone. He was even beginning to put down his surprise over the capture of Henry Smiley, and to feel that Henry was the one man he had been after from the first. Yes, he had made his success. The thing left was to win Annie. 
and to do this he must not only see her before dick could see her he must also arrange that dick's appearance on the scene when all the delays had been exhausted should be an inglorious one some of his finest work was yet to come in thinking it over lying in his berth in the room next to dick's their heads not two feet apart he fell asleep with a smile on his lips and never had the foot seen such sleeping as followed when all three men accusers and accused had slept through the afternoon and on through the night when they failed to hear even the breakfast gong captain sullivan began to wonder if they meant to wake at all afterward for a day or two all three beveridge dick and henry were very quiet they sat yawning in deck chairs or dozed in their berths but during this time thanks to the sunny skies and the peaceful lake and thanks to beveridge's elation and good nature to henry's surprising cheerfulness and to the difficulty Dick found in showing the depth of his feelings, the relations of the three were growing more and more pleasant. By common consent, they avoided discussing the chase or its cause. On the afternoon of the last day out, Dick and Beveridge sat smoking on the after-deck. The foot was rumbling slowly down the coast somewhere below Milwaukee, and should make Chicago before midnight, if nothing broke in the engine-room. They were discussing the Michigan peach crop when Henry drew up a chair and joined them. "'Would you mind telling me,' said Henry to Beveridge, filling his pipe as he spoke, "'what you are going to do with Dick here?' So Henry was the one to open the subject. Dick's lips drew together and his hand trembled, but his eyes were steady. Beveridge was evasive. "'What am I going to do with him?' he repeated. "'Yes, you will have a good deal of say about that, won't you?' "'Why, yes and no.' "'Now that you know he had nothing to do with it, "'you'll be able to get him right off, won't you?' "'Why, yes, so far as I know. "'I should expect it to turn out that way.' "'Henry saw that a definite answer was not to be expected, "'so he puffed a moment, looking off to the green shoreline. "'Finally,' he said, your man. What's his name? Wilson? Yes. He is in pretty bad shape, isn't he? There's no doubt about that. Do you think he'll pull through? I couldn't say. What would be the penalty if he didn't? That is for a judge and jury to decide. I suppose. Henry paused again. Dick was gazing out at the water with fixed eyes. This cool talk made him shudder. "'I've been thinking this over,' Henry went on. "'Of course, you caught me red-handed, and that, along with what I'm going to tell you, any time when you're ready, gives you a pretty clear case against me. My outlook isn't what you would call cheerful. I've never made a will, but I guess now is about as good a time as any to get about it. I've got my schooner, and I've got a little money put away, some of it drawing interest,' and some in the bank, and what there is of it is to go to Dick. He's the nearest approach to a relation I have, you know, and if I were you, Dick, I should take some of it the first thing and pay up for the Anne. That'll make you more or less independent. Do you fellows mind coming down into the cabin and fixing it up now? Certainly not, said Beveridge, rising. Dick found it difficult to reply, but he followed them below, 
and sat with them at the dining table. Beveridge got pen, ink, and paper. "'Now I'll tell you,' said Henry. "'I'll just make out sort of a schedule of what I'm worth. It won't take long. I know just what it is. There now, I guess it'll be enough to say that I devise and bequeath it all, without any conditions or exceptions to Dick. He to take everything of mine for his own, to hold and to use it in any way that he may choose. Will you witness this beverage? Certainly. We ought to have some others. I'll get them. Beveridge stepped out and returned shortly with Captain Sullivan and his second officer. These put their signatures under that of the special agent and with the exchange of only a word or two returned to their posts. Nothing could have been more matter-of-fact, could have savored more strongly of humdrum, everyday life. The three men sat there looking at the paper. Finally, Henry, with a smile, blotted it, folded it, and handed it to his cousin. "'I'm going to hand this over to you, Dick,' he said. "'That's the easiest way of disposing of it.' Dick accepted it and turned it slowly over and over in his hands. "'I, of course, Henry, I appreciate this, but—' and then his face surged with color, and he broke out in a round voice. "'What's the use of talking of this sort of thing now? Wilson isn't gone yet. I don't believe he will go, either. You make my blood run cold. You'd better just—' "'No,' Henry interrupted. "'No, I'd rather leave it like this.' "'But look here, Henry. Why, great guns, you aren't even convicted of illicit distilling yet, let alone—' Why, even if you should be, don't you see? You might lose a few years, but... Oh, there wouldn't be any doubt about the conviction, Dick. The game is up, so far as I am concerned. Supposing I should escape, what good would it do me? I should be a fugitive. I should have to leave the country and go to a new place and begin all over again, just as I began here on the lakes twenty-odd years ago. I have amounted to something here. I have held first place. I have kept these fellows, he indicated Beveridge with a slight upward turn at the corners of his mouth, I have kept these fellows guessing from the start. Anywhere else I should be nobody, and at my age that doesn't appeal very strongly to a man. Supposing even I could buy an acquittal and stay right on here, would it be any better? You see, my boy, I have been ambitious in a way. I have built up a machine, a new kind of a machine, if I could have been let alone a year or so longer, I should have had everything running as smooth and safe as the Republican County Committee. That was the one thing I set out to do. But it's busted now. With these fellows once on to the whole thing, it could never be carried on again. Oh, in a cheap shyster way, maybe, but that's not my way. It was my work, and now it's over." And when a man has come as near a success as I have, and spent the best part of his life working up toward it, he doesn't care about beginning at the little end of something else. His mainspring is broken. They were silent. Henry was easily the most self-possessed of the three. Finally, Beveridge said, You have spoken once or twice, Mr. Smiley, about telling us how you worked this business. Yes, certainly, any time. Now, if you like. You won't mind if I take down the main points and then ask you to put your name to it? Not at all. I supposed, of course, that you would want to do that. The cold-blooded courtesy brought Dick near to shuddering again, but he straightened up in his chair and prepared to listen. 
You say you are the man known as Whiskey Jim? Yes, that is the name the papers have given to the whole organization, and the organization, of course, is me. Would you mind talking rather slowly? I know shorthand, but I'm decidedly out of practice at it. Certainly not. Suppose I explain the organization in a few words. That'll do first rate. If I forget and get to going too fast, just stop me. You see, as master of the Schmidt, doing a tramp lumber business all around Lake Michigan and Lake Huron, I was able to run the whole thing at both ends and still keep about my business. I didn't have to do a thing that didn't look as solemn and proper as the Methodist minister and his parish calls. I see. It was ingenious, no doubt about it. To be on the safe side, I located my stills over in Canada. I know, at Burnt Cove. Yes, it was about as inaccessible there as any place on the lakes, and as we didn't try to sell the stuff over there, but shipped it all across to the States, we were really safe enough. I don't know what either country could have done about it, so far as the stills are concerned. Suppose I take it up here, Mr. Smiley, do you mind? No, go ahead. Well, when you got it put up and ready to ship, you brought it across Lake Huron in Spencer's schooner. Yes, yes. And at Spencer's it was repacked in the timber. Henry smiled a little at this. Some of it was. Of course, you know better than to think that what I could bring down in a load of timber once in a month or two or three was my only way of getting the goods to market. Oh, yes, of course. I have done things on a fairly large scale, you know. But you are right in the main. Spencer's was the distributing point for all our goods. The old man himself was what you might call the shipping clerk of the organization. But we'll go ahead with the timber scheme. That one line, if you follow it up, will be enough to base your case on, won't it? Yes, for the present, though you were concerned in the attempt to run a pipeline under the Detroit River. No, not very deep. I put a little money into it, but when I saw who was running it, I got out. I knew they would get nipped sooner or later. They went at it wrong. Well, you brought your loaded timbers to the pier at Lakeville. From there, they were hauled by wagons to Captain Stensenberger's yards. Stensenberger, working through McGlory, distributed the stuff in Chicago. Henry shook his head with a touch of impatience. You're getting off track there. Stensenberger had nothing to do with it. I fooled him through some of his men. Beveridge looked incredulous. So that's the way you want it to go down, is it? That's the way it was. Excuse me, Smiley, but that's absurd. I already have a case against Stensenberger. Even if I hadn't, it would outrage common sense to state that this man, a lumber merchant, could handle quantities of hollow timbers, could have them right there under his nose all this time without knowing it. But Henry was stubborn. Very well, added Beveridge. This is your statement. I will take it down just what you choose to say. You've got about enough there, I should imagine. Oh, about Wilson. I was in the bushes just below the bridge when he started to run around the house, and I shot him. There, now, with the confession of the smuggling and the shooting, you ought to have a case. Copy it out, put it in the right legal shape, and I'll sign it. All but the Stenzenberger part. I admit nothing about him. All right. I'll put it down as you want. It makes no difference to me, for you can never save him. 
one thing henry said dick that i don't understand what was mcglory after when he ran the ann up to burnt cove that time mcglory henry replied was a fool when you first told me about it i didn't know what to think myself but after thinking it over and from the way he has talked since when he was a little drunk i think i have made it out he has been planning for some time to skip with this estelle desert his wife he arranged it with her that time he came up with you and as what ready money he had was down in chicago where he couldn't very well get at it without his wife knowing it he took the chance of getting to burnt cove while you were sleeping off henry smiled i guess old spencer served you some pretty strong fluids up there that day well anyway mcglory thought he could take quite a lot of the stuff aboard sell it through one of our regular trade channels and get off with the money without going home he couldn't get it into his head that you really knew nothing about the business it was a crazy thing to do i should think so mcglory and roke are pretty good examples of the sort of thing i have had to contend with i've never been able to get good reliable men to work for me beveridge wanted to smile over the incongruity in this speech but he controlled himself and listened soberly henry went on if i could have handled it alone or with only spencer to help you would never have got me but with such a big business i had to employ a good many men that was my weak spot i've known it all along and dreaded it but i had to run the risk there's a risk in every business and that was the risk in mine no sir if i could have had competent men i should be laughing today at the whole revenue system i should take exception to that smiley said beveridge your men weren't the only thing that gave you away not by any means oh weren't they no the most important clue was the label you used but say smiley here is what puzzles me why is it that you a man of unusual ability haven't put in your time at something respectable the brains and work you have wasted on smuggling would have made you a comfortable fortune in some other line what do you mean by respectable beveridge politics trading preaching i guess you recognize the distinction on the contrary i don't recognize it at all i ask for information oh well there is no use opening up that question we all know the difference between right and wrong honesty and dishonesty do we do you i have always supposed i did you're an unusual man i congratulate you see here smiley this is interesting you don't mean to say that you consider smuggling an honorable business why not why not why why it might clear your ideas beveridge to go into this question a little smuggling means i suppose the bringing of merchandise from say canada to this country dutable merchandise yes what makes it dutable the law what makes the law the law is made by the people what people oh see here smiley this no wait a minute the trouble with you is you don't do your own thinking i'll do a little for you take an imaginary case there's a little group of men in this country who manufacture say tax as every man should they are looking out for their own interests they are out to make money the tax mean nothing to them except as they can be turned into money 
That is right and proper, isn't it? Certainly. Now suppose among them all they employ a good many thousand men in their tack factories, all of them voters. Suppose they're rich and ready to contribute a neat little sum to the campaign fund. Now then, if any other group of men start up, just over the Canadian line, where labor is cheaper, making tax and underselling our tack market, the natural thing for our tack men to do is to go to their representatives in Congress and say, Here, if you want our votes and our money, you must pass a law putting a duty on tax. Why do they say this? Because with such a law they can make more money. The people aren't helped by it, mind you. The people have to pay all the more. The only men to profit by it are the little group of tack manufacturers who want to get rich and fat at the expense of this public you talk about. Now, do the congressmen fall into line and pass the law? Certainly. Why? Because they are helped by it. They get the votes and the money contributions, and probably a neat bribe besides. All this while, mind you, the people are out of the game. They are being robbed by a law that was made entirely to enrich a little group of men. These bribe-givers and takers put up a job on us, the most dishonest kind of a job. And yet you seem to think I'm dishonest, too, because I follow their example and look out for number one. Hold on, Smiley, there's a fallacy there. Where? Point it out. I'm doing an honest business. The stuff I sell is well made. Do you suppose I care what your government people think? Why, the whole government system is a network of bribes and rake-offs and private snaps. Of course, if you're an anarchist... Look here, Beveridge, this talk seems to be rather personal. Suppose we make it more so. Let's see if we can't find out what your motives are in this business. Are they Christian or patriotic? Or are you, like myself and the tack men and the lawmakers, looking out for number one? The man that was out here before you came I bought off. But it didn't take me long to see that you couldn't be bought. Now why? That's the question. Was it because you have principles against it? Not at all. Don't get mad. I don't doubt a minute that you have some principles that you learned in Sunday school. But, Lord, when a man's grown up and has his living to fight for, do you think the Sunday school has any chance? So, you see, I thought it over and reasoned it out about like this. You and the other man were both ambitious, but where he wanted money, you want position. It's to your interest to keep the confidence of your superiors. That's why I couldn't buy you. It's all right. You've done a good job, but don't try to persuade yourself that your integrity is armor plate, that you've been doing right for the good of the Sunday school or from patriotic motives. Just because you happen to be on the winning side, because your gang happens to be on top, don't make the mistake of thinking you're better than the rest of us, for you aren't. Dick saw that Beveridge's tongue was trembling with a keen retort, and he broke in, "'But you haven't told how I was worked into this, Henry.' "'Oh, that's simple. I wanted to boost you along in the world, but you were young and had notions, so I thought if I could once make you bring down a load of the stuff without knowing it, you would find yourself in for it, and then I could make you see things in the right proportions. I wanted you bad. With one such man as you—' I could have fooled them forever. He paused and added meditatively, And I would have made you a rich man, Dick. But just when I had it arranged, you came and told me that you had gone daffy over Captain Fargo's little girl. 
and I saw I had as good as lost you. Yes, sir, I could have made your fortune. Well, anyhow, you'll get something out of it after... Beveridge rose to go to his room, gathering up the papers. I'm going to write this out now, boys. I'll see you later. Late in the evening, the statement was ready. Henry read it through, suggested a few emendations, and signed it. Then the three went on deck. Far down on the southwestern horizon was a row of twinkling lights. Above them in the sky was spread a warm glow. "'We're getting along,' said Henry. "'There's Chicago.' "'Oh, is it?' exclaimed Beveridge with interest. "'Yes, we'll soon be in. Isn't it about time to put the handcuffs on me?' Beveridge smiled. "'That will hardly be necessary.' "'But Chicago's a big town. I might get away from you.' "'We won't worry about that.' "'Do you carry the things on you? I never saw any.' Beveridge drew a pair from his hip pocket and handed them to Henry. "'How do they work?' "'Easily. Slip them on. This way.' There was a click, and Henry's hands were chained together. "'That's easy enough, isn't it?' said he, walking a few steps up and down the deck, surveying himself. Then he went to the rail and leaned on it, looking silently off toward the lights. Just what came next, Dick never could remember. He had turned away to gaze at the alternating red and white lights that marked Gross Point and Home, so that he saw little more than Henry's swift movement and Beveridge's start. An instant more, and he was standing at the rail with Beveridge in the place where Henry had been standing a moment before, gazing down at the foam that fell away from the bows. He heard the special agent sing out, "'Stop her! Stop her, Captain! Man overboard!' He was conscious that the engines had stopped, and he heard the captain's voice from the bridge. "'No use! He went under the wheel!' Then came the order to lower a boat and the rush of feet across the deck. End of chapter 14